Last week I spent pretty much the whole of my talk exploring mindfulness of the body, the first establishment in the Satipatthana Sutta. And I mentioned that this section of the Sutta has six different techniques for exploring mindfulness of the body. And last week I focused on just the first three of these, mindfulness of breathing, of postures, and of daily activities. And these are the three mindfulness of the body techniques that are most commonly taught in the West. And as I as we know, they're all about knowing our bodily experience from within, just as it is, cultivating an attitude of bare awareness in relation to whatever our physical experience is. But the next three practices within the section on mindfulness of the body have a slightly different approach. They use concepts to help us develop a wise relationship to the body. So these last three of the six techniques are contemplating the body in relation to its anatomical parts, contemplating the body in relation to its elemental qualities, and contemplating the body as a corpse in decay. So you might get a sense from hearing that list of why these are not so commonly taught in in the West outside of monastic settings. And it's possible some of you are already noticing some unpleasant Vedana, unpleasant feeling tone at the idea of what these practices are about. So if so, I just encourage you to keep in mind that the purpose of them is to support insight, clear seeing, so that we can live with more ease, more happiness, more freedom in relation to our own bodies and in relation to the bodies of others. In other words, the point of these practices is to help release us from dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering that's highlighted in the first noble truth that Dara spoke of a few nights ago. So just as a reminder, here's a translation of the first noble truth. The noble truth of dukkha practitioners is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Association with the unpleasant is suffering. Dissociation from the pleasant is suffering. Not to receive what one desires is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to grasping or clinging as suffering. So that's a pretty comprehensive definition, and I just want to highlight the last part of that quote, that the role of clinging or, gla- clinging or grasping in relation to the five aggregates. Now, I'm not going to go into another whole numbered list. I'm just going to focus tonight on the first aggregate, which is the aggregate of material form. And specifically within that, our bodies. Because for most people, our bodies are a source, a locus of strong clinging and or resistance. So last week I mentioned Shinzen Young's formula about suffering, the relationship between resistance and suffering. So he 
define this as S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. And there's a particular aspect of resistance that amplifies the suffering even more. And that's the tendency to identify with our experience, to take it personally, to to make it all about me, mine, who I am. So sometimes I like to change Shinsen Young's formula to S equals P times I. Suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. And I think, as pretty much all of you know already, the more of a sense of I we add to any situation, the more we suffer. And this suffering or clinging and identification often does start with clinging to the body as I, as me, as mine, as who I am. And then based on this mistaken assumption, we believe that we should be in complete control of our bodies. We spend enormous amounts of time and energy and money on all kinds of strategies to try to make the body do what we want. We try to make it always look lovely. We try to prevent it from aging. We try to avoid it getting sick. And consciously or unconsciously, we try to deny the truth that sooner or later it's going to die. And these mistaken ways of relating to the body are all symptoms of delusion. So the more strongly we're invested in them, the more we're going to suffer. And in the Vipalasa Sutta, the Buddha named this connection between misperceptions, delusion and suffering very clearly. He's reported to have said, these four practitioners are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there's no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely, Gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds, bound in the bondage of Mara. These people are far from safety. They are beings that go on flowing, going again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right minds. They see change in what is changing. Suffering where there is suffering. Non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So you might get a sense of the role that the body can play in that misperception. And I do want to acknowledge that different cultures around the world have very different ways of relating to the body. But in the mainstream Western culture that I've been steeped in, we tend to have a very distorted 
superficial skin-deep perception of the body. We objectify our own bodies and each other's bodies and value them based almost totally on our visual appearance and according to particular norms of attractiveness that are created by consumerism and norms that are almost impossible for ordinary people to attain. And it's hard to overestimate the tyranny of this way of relating to our bodies and the wider social implications of this. So in one of his Dharma talks a few weeks ago, Brian pointed to this, the role of physical attractiveness in determining who gets rewarded in society. And he described this so clearly that I thought it was worth uh, uh, sharing it again now. He said, in the visual field, the eye gets pulled towards the person you find attractive or the people you find attractive, which renders some people visible and other people invisible. Visibility and invisibility arise in society around individuals and around groups of people. Our grasping onto the people we find pleasant and pushing away the people we find unpleasant has huge societal ramifications. Your mind is society. So attractive people, societally attractive people, by conventional standards, tend to have better physical health, better mental health, better dating experiences. They tend to earn more money. They tend to obtain higher career positions. They're chosen for jobs more often, promoted more often, receive better job evaluations, and are chosen as business partners more often than unattractive people. So when I heard that, I don't know about for you, but for me, it just felt tragic. Tragic that we value ourselves and other people based almost entirely on the shape, the size, the age, the color of our bodies, instead of more meaningful values, such as the quality of our hearts and minds. And this is so pervasive that most of the time we're not even that aware of what it's like. We're so immersed in this culture of valuing our external appearance above all else. But I was fortunate early on in my practice to have an opportunity to spend some time in a different culture, a different environment. One where I was able to be temporarily free of this insidious pressure. So quite a few years ago now, I spent three months volunteering at a monastery in a meditation center in Thailand. And by Western standards, the accommodation was quite basic. There was no hot water, no flushing toilets, no showers, no mirrors anywhere. And I and the other volunteers, we were doing a lot of physical work. So we were wearing work clothes that we got out of their equivalent of the Dharma closet. So instead of wearing our own clothes, we were wearing kind of ratty old t-shirts and worn out pants. We didn't have access to computers or internet, books, magazines, media of any kind. So we weren't exposed to advertising for three whole months. 
And I didn't realize how freeing this was until I left that center, got to the airport to leave Thailand. And I was standing in line and passport control and I suddenly became aware that my mind was really noticing the clothes that the other women were wearing and checking out how their hair was styled and what kind of makeup they were wearing and even smelling the kind of fragrances. And then I suddenly caught sight of my own reflection in a glass shop front and <laughs> this tidal wave of comparing mine just hit me and it was so painful because I'd been so free of it for so long. When it came back, it, fu- it felt like a form of madness or insanity, which in many ways it is. The advertising industry and capitalism generally tyrannizes us with messages that we're not good enough, we're not beautiful enough, we're not young enough, we're not fit enough, we're not stylish enough, on and on and on, so that we'll spend more money to try and fill this ever-present feeling of inadequacy. And sadly, often we do internalize these messages of not good enough. We objectify our own bodies and reduce them to a collection of body parts and identify with the ones that we like or more often the ones we don't like. So you hear people say things like, I hate my flabby thighs or I hate my big nose or I hate my feeble biceps. And that becomes me who I am. I am my flabby thighs and my big nose and my feeble biceps. Yet none of us actually chose our bodies. None of us have much control over them. And when we really pay attention, we start to realize just how little control we actually have over our bodies. We can't stop them from getting injured, from getting sick, from aging, from eventually dying. And I know that many of you here are navigating different kinds of health challenges. And all of us, even those of you who are younger, are aging. All of us are going to die. So clinging to the body as a permanent source of happiness is going to uh, turn it into a source of suffering. And in saying all this, it's not like we're supposed to neglect our health or stop taking care of our hygiene or wander around wearing sacks or something. Sort of apathy, oh, who cares? We're all going to die anyway. It's not, that's not where we're trying to go. What we're trying to see is the degree of clinging to the body and release that. To release that unconscious belief that if I could just paint myself the perfect face or sculpt myself the perfect body, then I'll live happily ever after. So we need to develop a balanced and healthy relationship to the body. Again, this famous middle way between not hating it on one hand and not taking excessive pride in it on the other. So given that these distorted ways of relating to the body are so powerful, how might we start to loosen their grip? to learn how to see the body with wisdom as it actually is, impermanent, not fully under our control, 
not inherently beautiful or inherently unbeautiful. This is where the fourth, the first foundation of mindfulness practice of contemplating the body in terms of 32 anatomical parts can come in. And this list of 32 anatomical parts is not intended to be a full catalog of everything that's in the body's anatomy. It's just a kind of representative selection of different aspects of the body starting with those that are most solid, such as the bones, and then progressing to those that are less solid, the organs, and then finishing with liquids such as saliva and urine. So this practice is traditionally done by just reciting the the list of the parts of the body out loud and trying to connect with those parts and noticing any responses or reactions that we have to each of them. And I'll give us a chance to experiment with that soon. But before we do that, just to say that with some of the parts that are named, you might not be able to get a direct felt sense of them. Some you might, you might be able to feel, for example, the hardness of the bones somewhere in the body. But for other parts, such as the spleen, You might not even know what or where the spleen is. (laughs) Certainly not what it feels like, but you can be pretty sure that if you didn't have a spleen, you wouldn't be sitting here. So it's fine for some of this to be an intellectual understanding. So as as I'm going through the list, you might notice what's happening in the body and also any reactions in the mind. In some cases, perhaps aversion or confusion, resistance or irritation. Perhaps in other cases, the words might bring up blankness or neutrality, interest, openness, maybe even gratitude. You're not trying to get any particular response, just notice any that might come up. So these are the words from the Satipatthana Sutta. And further practitioners, a contemplative contemplates this same body bounded by the skin up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head as full of many kinds of substances, saying, in this body there are head hair, body hair, Nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, small intestines, bowels, the stomach and its contents, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, oils, saliva, mucus of the nose, lubricants of the joints, 
and urine. The Sutta then continues to by giving a simile that illustrates the kind of attitude that we're trying to cultivate with this practice in relation to all these different parts of the body. It says, just as though there were a bag open at both ends full of many sorts of grain, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, and a man with sound eyes were to open it and contemplate it thus. This is hill rice. This is red rice. These are beans. These are peas. This is millet. This is white rice. So too, a contemplative contemplates the same body bounded by the skin, up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head, as full of many kinds of substances. In this body, there are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and so on. So what we're trying to do is just to know the organic nature of our bodies with an attitude of non-reactivity, not being fascinated, not being repulsed, simply knowing with equanimity the biological truth of what our bodies are made of. So I'll go through the list just one more time and see, again, any reactions towards what you're hearing. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, small intestines, bowels, the stomach and its contents, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, oils, saliva, mucus of the nose, lubricants of the joints, and urine. So what's it like just to hear these different aspects of the body named in a very matter-of-fact way? For me, the first time I did these practices, it really revealed how much I unconsciously are trying to deny the biological nature of the body and to censor out all the aspects of the body that are conventionally unattractive. So it can be a relief just to acknowledge, yes, this body does produce bile and phlegm and pus and so on. And a few days ago, Rebecca mentioned that in dominant mainstream culture, we're obsessed with productivity And I started thinking, actually, there's one area where we don't appreciate productivity, and that's in relation to our bodies and our bodily products. Most of our bodily products are deeply socially unacceptable, even a source of humiliation and shame. And we spend a lot of time and energy trying to get rid of these unwanted products. 
And again, this doesn't mean we should neglect our hygiene and let it all hang out sort of hippie style. But if we were able to be more accepting of our body's organic nature, we could save ourselves a lot of angst. Perhaps you have some examples from your own life, but just a simple one from my own life. When I was a teenager, about 13 years old, I won a a regional art competition, and the prize was a trip to another city with a group of teenagers that I didn't know for a weekend away from my parents. I think it was the first time that I was away from them, and this was like teenage heaven. And one afternoon on this trip, we were taken to a roller skating rink for the afternoon. And I'd already developed a crush on one of the boys, so I was trying to impress him with my amateur roller skating skills and gliding around the rink. And then I came into the side to talk to this boy who'd seemed pretty keen on me. But this time he kind of just wasn't really making eye contact and he wasn't really engaging. And I thought, well, maybe he's just intimidated by what a great roller skater I am. (laughs) And I was going to try and fish for a compliment, but he just kind of said something, muttered and, and wandered off. And a few seconds after he'd gone, I put my hand up to my face and felt a giant stalactite of dried snot hanging from my nose, which explained why he wasn't really making eye contact with me. And we can hear that story, and perhaps for some of you there's a cringe, for some of you might laugh, some of you might cry. But on another level, you might ask, well, why? Why is it so terrible to be reminded of the body's organic nature? We all have bodies. We all produce these different products. And if we could just accept that a little more, there'd be a lot less humiliation and shame, and I think a lot more kindness and compassion in the world. If we could accept our body's organic nature, we might learn to appreciate it more fully, to treat it with respect and gratitude instead of burdening it with unrealistic expectations and resenting it when it can't be controlled in the ways we want. So if we do recognize the ways that we're relating to our own or other people's bodies in ways that aren't skillful, this practice of contemplating the body's anatomical parts can be very helpful. And we don't have to do it by reciting the list of 32 bits. We can be creative with it. So Bhikkhu Analyo offers this practice in a very simplified way by condensing the list into just three categories, skin, flesh, and bones. And he offers it as a a body scan. So we scan from the top of the head down to the feet and just noticing or tuning in to skin, to the external level of the body. And we can do this in detail or we can do it quite quickly with just one breath, knowing skin as we scan down the body to the feet. And then we sweep up the body from the feet to the head and move in to the body a little more to the level of flesh. And as we do that, we tune in to flesh through the whole body. 
And flesh includes the muscles, the tendons, the organs, and so on. And again, we don't have to get a felt sense of flesh, but we can just recognize or acknowledge this body has its fleshy nature. And then the third time we scan back down from the head to the feet, and this time more deeply into the body, to the skeleton, the bones. And we can feel whatever aspect of the bones is clear. But if there are areas where the bones don't feel obvious, we can just simply know, yes, there are somewhere in their bones. So body scans, skin, flesh, bones, or sometimes walking meditation, we can walk and simply know the skeleton, walking, bones, bones. We can also do it as a form of choiceless awareness. So when we're aware of sensations in the body, we can just notice whatever's predominant and name it in terms of its anatomical parts. So when we're walking, we might notice at times tendons as the leg is stretching. We feel the ball of the foot press into the ground. We can note bones, the stomach gurgles, and we might note stomach. Perhaps the breeze blows across the face and we become aware of skin. So however we explore this practice, the point of it, as I'm emphasizing, is to develop a balanced attitude. If you find that it might possibly for some people move into um, aversion for the body, then drop it, let it go. It's not the right time to be doing it. If that's true, then you might move into some metta or compassion practice instead. Or you might like to experiment with the next set of contemplations in the sutta, the four elemental qualities. So here again, we're invited to explore the body very directly as an interplay of changing qualities or elements, traditionally referred to as earth, water, fire, and wind or air. So the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta invite us to notice this same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. Now, these days we might hear this term, the four elements, and think, well, that's pretty simplistic. We all know there are way more than four elements. But these four elements are not intended to be a scientific description of the body. They're a way of understanding uh, aspects of our physical experience more directly as qualities of hardness or softness, solidity, liquidity, warmth, coolness, movement, space, and so on. So perhaps a more useful translation of the term elements is as four elemental qualities. And again, the benefit of exploring the body in terms of these elemental qualities is it can help take out the identification with it. 
It helps us to see clearly that everything we experience is impermanent, unreliable, not belonging to us, not completely under our control. So, for example, instead of thinking my lungs are rising and falling or my knees hurt or my bladder is full, we can simply know sensations of expansion, contraction, tingling, pressure and so on. And the second benefit of doing this practice is that it begins to break down the sense of ourselves as separate entities disconnected from the natural world around us. So, for example, with the elemental quality of earth, the earth stands as a symbol for any experience of hardness or softness in the body, just as the earth itself is hard or soft. So whenever we experience qualities of hardness or softness, all of these can be classified as the elemental quality of earth. So to get a sense of that right now, Can you feel the weight of the body sinking into the ground beneath you? That's earth. If you clamp the teeth together, can you feel the hardness, the solidity of the teeth? That also is earth. If you clench one hand and you feel the fingernails pressing into your flesh, that's also the hardness of earth. And we can start to recognize out in the world, too, there are these same qualities of hardness and softness. Next time you're out in the woods, you might find a big old maple tree and hug it and feel in its trunk, in its body, just as in your body, solidity and hardness, smoothness and roughness. Or if you're sitting on a rock, you can know that some of the same minerals in that rock are also in our bones. And when we die, those minerals will return back to the earth. The second of the four elemental qualities is water. Any experience of liquid or fluid in the body, saliva, tears, joint fluid, urine, blood, and so on. It also includes the quality of stickiness or cohesion because, for example, water can bind things together. If we mix water with flour, it sticks together and becomes dough. So to get a sense of the water elemental quality right now, next time you swallow, can you notice the mouth filling with saliva again? It's water. Or if you take a moment to roll your eyes, let them move from side to side or up and down, you can feel that sliding quality of the eyeballs. That too is water. You can even notice with the in-breath and the out-breath that the out-breath has just a bit more moisture in it. You might feel it around the nostrils. That too is water. And we can know that this water in our bodies is identical to the water molecules outside the body. As Greg was saying, our bodies are 60% water. And when we die, that water will evaporate. It will become clouds. 
and eventually return to the rivers and the sea. The third elemental quality is fire, which symbolizes temperature, the experiences of hot or cold. And it also refers to the experience of uh, digestion and aging. So the Buddha defined the fire elemental quality as that by which one is warmed, ages and is consumed and that by which what is eaten gets digested. So fire element also refers to our metabolism, our life energy. And again, you can feel that right now as you check in with the body and notice parts of the body that feel warm or hot or perhaps cool. You might again notice the difference between the in-breath and the out-breath and how the out-breath is a little warmer. Or more subtly, you might notice the process of digestion going on right now. That too is fire. And just as we have heat and cool in our bodies, everything outside our bodies also has a temperature. We can feel the warmth or coolness of the floor beneath our feet or the air against our skin. And when we die, the warmth of our bodies will cool to the same temperature as the environment around us. So the fourth elemental quality is air, sometimes also referred to as wind. Experiences of air in the body, such as breathing, most obviously, or of gas forming in the intestines. And as wind, it also symbolizes movement, motion, vibration, and sometimes also as space. When the mind is very quiet, we can sense into the cavities in the body. We can know the lungs or the opening of the nostrils or the ears. So again, right now, as you take a deeper breath, and you feel the air rushing in through the nose or the mouth very directly, knowing air. And as the oxygen comes into the body, you can feel the lungs expanding and then contracting. And you might notice gurgling of gases through the stomach and the intestines right on cue. So this elemental quality of air includes the air itself and the air all around us, which we share. So in New Zealand, when uh, Maori people greet each other formally, they uh, do something called a hongi, where they press their foreheads and noses to each other's foreheads and noses so that they're literally sharing the breath of life. So the breath of life all of us are sharing here. And when we die, the air in our lungs and in our body cavities will escape and return to the atmosphere. So that's a very quick overview of what these four elemental qualities represent. And it might seem at first a little strange way of interpreting our experiences, but as we get more familiar with them, 
we start to see how these qualities offer us deep insight into the nature of the body, again, we see that every aspect of it is changing. And we're not nearly as separate from the rest of nature as we'd like to think. We have a much more immediate sense that what happens to the environment happens to us. We can't wreak havoc on nature out there and have it not affect us humans too. So there are a lot of benefits to this practice. And if you choose to experiment with it, it's not intended to be an intellectual exercise. So it's not about trying to think, was that earth? Was it wind? Was it fire? It's more about knowing the sensations directly, qualities of hardness or stickiness, warmth, expansion, and so on. And when we can do this, we start to come directly into contact with the truth of the body's impermanence. We notice that our physical sensations are constantly changing and it's only our concepts about the body, the overlays that we put on top of it that are static. So for example, right now, if you close your eyes and just bring awareness to your hand, what are you actually experiencing? Is there a thing that you can identify as hand? Or is that a label that we apply, a visual image or a memory to where we think the hand should be? If we can let go of the concept of hand and just connect with the direct experience of that region of the body, probably all we'll find are sensations, perhaps tingling or warmth, pressure, hardness, twitching, and so on. So the more we can keep releasing our concepts about the body, the more we start to see that there's nothing unchanging or solid or controllable that we can think of as my body. And this radical insubstantiality and changeability is being recognized by modern science with technology such as electron scanning microscopes. I like to read you a description of what scientists are discovering about the body with with this new technology. It says, the electron scanning microscope with the power to magnify several thousand times takes us down into a realm that has the look of the sea about it. As the magnification increases, the flesh begins to dissolve. Muscle fiber now takes on a fully crystalline aspect we can see that it is made of long spiral molecules in orderly array. And all of these molecules are swaying like wheat in the wind, connected with one another and held in place by invisible waves that pulse many trillion times a second. What are the molecules made of? As we move closer, we see atoms tiny shadowy balls dancing around their fixed locations in the molecules, sometimes changing position with their partners in perfect rhythm. And now we focus on one of the atoms, 
Its interior is lightly veiled by a cloud of electrons. We come closer, increasing the magnification. The shell dissolves and we look on the inside to find nothing. Somewhere within that emptiness we know is a nucleus. We scan the space and there it is, a tiny dot. At last we've discerned something hard and solid, a reference point. But no, as we move closer to the nucleus, it too begins to dissolve. It too is nothing more than an oscillating field, waves of rhythm. Inside the nucleus are other organized fields, protons, neutrons, even smaller particles. Each of these, upon our approach, also dissolves into pure rhythm. Of what is the body made? It is made of emptiness and rhythm. At the ultimate heart of the body, at the heart of the world, there is no solidity. Once again, there is only the dance. And one of the amazing things about meditation is that we don't need an electron microscope to understand, to perceive the body in that way. As our sati and samadhi get stronger, we can know the body's lack of solidity and its radical impermanence very directly in our own experience. So understanding the truth of the impermanence of the body on deeper and deeper levels is supported by the last of the contemplations of mindfulness of the body, the series of nine contemplations of a corpse in decay. And this is definitely not taught very much. Because when it comes to impermanence of the body, I think pretty much all of us resist that truth to varying degrees. Certainly on a societal level, there are whole industries that are devoted to denying the truth that our bodies age and are dying. And for most of us, that can bring up a primal fear, one that we've developed all kinds of strategies to avoid feeling. But no matter how much we try to deny it, on some level we're often driven by that fear. And when we are able to turn towards it, to meet it with kindness, care, compassion, it has an opportunity to release. And for most of us, this process of coming to terms with our own mortality needs to be a gradual one. It's not helpful to try to force it. On the other hand, neither do we want to keep postponing it. Sometimes younger people think that contemplation of death is a practice that's only relevant for old people like me. But the delusion of immortality is often stronger in younger people. So in some ways they need this practice even more. And young people have the good fortune of having possibly more time to explore it. So instead of waiting until close to the end of life and suddenly realizing that time is running out, it can be helpful at least at times to touch into this truth. Because there's also the truth that whether we're young, whether we're old, none of us actually knows how long we're going to live. 
People do die unexpectedly every day, every hour, every minute, every second. So it pays to start turning gently towards our own mortality now, knowing that it is inevitable and only the time of it is uncertain. So in this section of the Satipatthana Sutta, there are nine uh, separate contemplations looking at a corpse in different stages of decay. I'll just read you the last one so that you can get a flavor of it. Again, practitioners, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, various kinds of worms, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood, a skeleton without flesh and blood, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, bones bleached white, the color of shells, bones heaped up more than a year old, bones rotten and crumbling to dust. One compares the same body with that one thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. In most Western countries, we don't have the opportunity to study actual corpses in decay like that. But the text makes it clear that this is intended to be an imaginative exercise. It says we're to uh, contemplate as though one were to see a corpse. So if it feels useful, if it's the right time, we can engage with this practice creatively and find whatever ways we can to touch into the truth of the body's mortality. My first teachers in Thailand, for example, they encouraged us whenever we saw the body of a dead animal, not to turn away from it, but to take some time to really look at it and to reflect. This too, my body is of the same nature. Thus it will become and cannot escape it. So a few years ago, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to go to an autopsy lab and to look at cadavers, bodies that had been dissected for medical training. Some of you may also have had that experience. It's uh, pretty powerful. And I also want to acknowledge that for many cultures around the world, the practice of performing autopsies is pretty challenging. Uh, It challenges deep cultural and religious beliefs about death. And even if we don't have those kind of uh, cultural and religious beliefs, still there's something challenging about dissecting a human body. So when I was invited to go to this lab, I had a bit of apprehension. And I was kind of assuming that it will be a gruesome or a grueling experience. But before we got to view the actual cadavers, the director of the lab talked to us. And I found the way she spoke about her work deeply inspiring. 
I would have expected that someone who spent day after day cutting up corpses might have been a bit blasé about the human body. But it was clear from the way she spoke to us and the way she treated each of the cadavers that she brought out that she had enormous respect for the human body. So when the time came to see that first cadaver, I felt a sense of deep awe even a kind of sacredness. And that's not a word that I use very often. So the body that we looked at had been prepared so that we could see inside it and we could identify the various organs such as the pancreas and the gallbladder, the saliva glands, the brain and so on. And the complexity of just the physical aspect of the body was awe-inspiring quite miraculous that all of these different lumps of meat and bone within us are able to function together to support a human life. So just the physical sort of meat and bone aspect of the body is complex enough. But then we also have the chemical system of the hormones that are constantly being released to help us digest and sleep and wake up and regulate our moods. And then interacting with that is the electrical system of the body, the firing of neurons that are sending millions of messages to different parts of our bodies to keep the whole system responding appropriately. It's incredible that all these different parts function together as well as they do most of the time. And it was very clear from being with those dissected corpses, that the body is not what we could call me, mine, myself. So again, the point of this practice is not to induce despair. It's intended to strengthen the courage to live our lives more consciously and fully because we don't know when we're going to die. And practicing with that truth now can bring us more clarity about our deepest aspirations and what really matters to us. So we can ask ourselves, even right now, if I did die tonight, is there anything I'd regret? And the more we can soften and release our fear of death, the more room we have in our hearts for the Brahma-Vihara qualities to emerge of kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity. So again, we come back to this connection between love and fear. So if you do choose to explore these more challenging aspects of having a human body, may these practices help as to release fear and to strengthen love. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.